Anyway, turn with me, if you would, to uh, John. I'm going to turn right back to where Mr. Rod McNair had us. He swiped my first scripture, but I'm not going to let him swipe, but I'm going to use it anyway. He had no idea. Brethren, Jesus Christ is now, right now, building a team of kings and priests and leaders for his coming kingdom. And it is important that we focus on that. We're focusing on Christ. I gave you a pre-Passover sermon a few weeks ago. Mr. Ames gave one last time. But this is a little different. And interestingly, Mr. McNair had some similar thoughts but approached it somewhat differently in his sermonette. But certainly our future job does tie in with the Passover very, very much and what Christ is doing right now. John 14, as most of you know, John 14, verses 1 to 3, is a passage that all of you older brethren will remember is read so often at funerals. The Protestant ministers will intone and they'll say, uh, you know, on solemn tones, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in me, and our dear beloved John Smith has gone off to his reward up in heaven and blah, 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 blah. A lot of you younger kids who grew up in the church, you haven't heard that, but that's the way they do in the Protestant sermons because they don't understand it. Jesus said here, talking to his disciples who did understand that they were being trained to be kings and priests, let not your heart be troubled. He told them he was going to depart, of course, and go to the Father even before then. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, what is the Father's house? Several places. I'm not going to take time to give a sermonette on that, but if you turn just back to the early part of this very book, John chapter 2 and verse 16, back also in John, John chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus said to those who sold doves in the temple, they were in the temple as you read the passage, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise you'll find the same thing mentioned also in matthew uh, 21 matthew 21 verses 12 and 13 and other places as well for several times jesus christ himself calls the temple the temple of god the father's house and some of the commentaries even acknowledge that these places could mean the rooms or offices where the various priests had their particular offices. That is, I have an office on the second floor of our administration building. And when you go to the Capitol, you'll find the office of the Speaker of the House or the office of the Senate Majority Leader. And that's the place where the Senate Majority Leader, you know, works out of. You'll find the White House, as we call it, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, as it is in Washington, D.C. When we say the occupant of the White House... Most Americans realize that means the President of the United States. And so he said, in my Father's house are many positions. In the temple, which is God's house, there are many offices, many positions, many special places where the leaders would have their place, their office, their opportunity to serve. And that's what Christ was talking about. He absolutely was talking about that. He was not talking about floating off to heaven. He said right here in the book of John, as most of you know, no man has ascended up to heaven except he who came down from heaven, Jesus Christ. And of course, John 3 verse 13 is the passage that says that where John himself wrote that here in this same book. So he's not talking about us going off to heaven. He's talking about in God's temple, which is where the priests, the physical leaders had their offices, 
we would also in God's coming temple in the new Jerusalem and God's kingdom, we would have offices. And he said, if it were not so, I would have told you. If you wouldn't have anything to do, I would have told you about it. I go to prepare a place. I go to prepare a job, a position, a responsibility in the coming kingdom of God for you, whether you will be over five cities or whether you will be over ten cities or perhaps a small nation under King David or some other great leader or whatever. And if I go and prepare a place, God does things through Jesus Christ always in dealing with human beings, as you know. And so Christ is the one who's our direct head and leader, and he's the one doing the detailed preparing. If I go and prepare a place, a job, and decide that, you know, let's say Bill Bomer's over this city over here, and then maybe uh, Mr. Davis is over this city over there, and maybe Mr. McNaughton is over this city over here, and maybe someone else is over the city somewhere else or a small nation or whatever. That's what Christ is doing. He's judging us. He's watching us, each one of us, and seeing how much we respond to God and to Christ's leadership. He's watching us. Will we be part of the team that he's preparing? Will we be loyal members that he can trust in his kingdom, in his family, on his team, so to speak, forever? And so I go to prepare a place and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And of course, he will come again. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Well, of course, the, car the disciples were still carnal. They knew a lot of the truth technically, but they were not converted. That's the reason Jesus said near the end to Peter, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. That's the reason Peter at the very end cursed and denied Christ three times in a row. And yet in the book of Acts, all of a sudden, he had this tremendous faith and zeal. And even Peter's shadow passing over people healed them, as you read in Acts chapter 5 and verse 15. What a change when the Holy Spirit came. Thomas said, of course, doubting Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? What's the way to get in this position? What's the way to get in this kingdom? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I'm the perfect personification of the great God who's come down in the human flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. And he proceeded to say that for the next several verses. He reflected God perfectly. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus showed us exactly the way God the Father would be if he would be here dealing with other human beings. And so we have to study that, pray about it. Whenever God was told Christ, in a sense, go here, he went there. And he told him, perhaps millions of years ago, they planned it out together. I want you, the Logos, the spokesman, the great second being in the God family, to empty yourself and come down and give your life for these human beings that we're going to make in our image. And they're going to spit on you and they're going to curse you and they're going to torture you and they're, they're going to kill you. And Christ said, yes, Father, not my will, but thine be done. That was Christ's attitude, always, always. He didn't say, well, I think about this. Well, I'm going to get my feelings hurt if I can't be as great as the Father or whatever. He did not do that. He showed the example of total obedience and surrender to God. So I am the way, the truth, and the life. His life totally pictured that. 
And that, of course, is a wonderful thing. And then a, ser- a sermon within itself. Turn out Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, verse chapter 1 and verse 19. Here he's talking about the great power of God toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. I'm not reading the whole passage. It's one of these long sentences that Paul wrote. goes on several verses. Which he worked in Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, all the great leaders of the world, the cherubim, the seraphim, you know, the four living creatures, here's Christ above all those great offices and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come and put all things, we need to really understand that God the Father has put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him, Jesus Christ, now resurrected, now sitting at the right hand of the Father to be head over all things to His church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fits all in all. So Christ is the living head of the church. And we have to have a profound understanding and realization of that. As I told you perhaps a couple weeks ago, we all get disoriented at times, and God knows that. He has mercy on us. I've been disoriented a number of times and never fell away, thankfully, but I certainly even was sort of disoriented in a way several years ago when the apostasy just took over the church. And I even began to wonder about the meaning of the church being the mother of us all. I really did. And some of our men, Mr. Ames, remembers some comments I made to the doctrinal team, and we were try- I brought that up, and we were trying to discuss it. It seemed, well, if, if the church is the mother of us all, how come, you know, God just abandoned the church and just, you know, as we say, went to hell in a handbasket under the scotches? They tore everything up. They destroyed Ambassador College. It was part of my life. It wasn't something way over there. Outside of Mr. Herbert Armstrong, why Ted and Herman Hay and I were some of the main ones writing the main articles getting the magazines and booklets, the correspondence course out, raising up churches and doing all the things to help build this work. The work continuing right now a vital part of my life for 40 years, for 40 solid years since my ordination in 1952 and in late 1992, they began tearing it to pieces. And finally, we had to start the global church of God, which now became the living church of God. But later, as I look back, I wasn't trying to exalt myself in all honesty. My wife knows that. She sort of hurt, hoped I'd even leave sooner. I just thought, I can't do that. I've got to be sure. But finally, I realized I had to leave. There wasn't any choice. Mike and Joe were going to forcibly retire me. They said, you will do nothing. They were telling me, in effect, you will sit in your wheelchair and do nothing. Or your rocking chair, I guess. <laughs> that was the, that was the approach. And I thought, oh, I've been praying to God to know what to do, so I'll have to do what I know Mr. Armstrong would do. But then later, after the work began to grow, I looked back and I thought, wait a minute. Weak as I am, which I am, and human as I am, which I am, somehow, because I was the only one of the original evangelists who would do something, God used me to carry on the work. And He didn't wait six years. He didn't wait, you know, 20 years or he didn't make us wait as Joseph had to wait, being put down 13 years from age about 17 to age 30 before God finally brought Joseph out of prison and so on, you know, and began to use him as the top man under the Pharaoh over all of Egypt. 
he just had us wait a few weeks. We started the Global Church of God, uh, uh, technically or officially, I guess we had unofficial services in my home in December, then January the 2nd, 1993, the first official service. And I think Mr. Davis would remember, but sometime in February, wasn't it? I think it was before the end of February, maybe early March. We started on radio in KIEV Glendale and KWKH back in Little Rock, Arkansas. And a few weeks later, we were on a clear channel 50,000-watt radio station, one of the big stations that Mr. Armstrong used to build to work in his day, WHO, no, I'm sorry, WOAI, out of uh, San Antonio. WHO is the other big one up in Des Moines, Iowa. So right away, we began to be across where millions of people were if they were here. They didn't all hear it first, but at least there was a way for those who were watching and praying, calling others in the church. They could have found out Christ had a way of escape. He will never attempt to be on your ability. will always provide a way of escape. There was something. He did not desert the church. He did not desert the church. There was a church carrying on the work that Christ began through Herbert W. and Loma Armstrong up in the Willamette Valley back in 1933 and 1934. And we were the ones doing that, weak as we are. The work did get started again, and we did carry it on, and we can be very grateful for that. Not that we're great at all, we're not, but we have that opportunity. Christ does not desert His church. He might give you a trial for a few weeks or months or even years sometimes as far as the other kind of trials, but He didn't wait and make the brethren wait for years before there was any other church available. Just a matter of perhaps 6 to 12 weeks, depending on where they were and how hard they were looking. They could have found out, and many did, of course, because that very autumn we had, as you know, uh, uh, 3,000, oh, 1,500 people, uh, for, no, thir- uh, 1,500 people for the Feast of Tabernacles, and then the next autumn we had 3,000 people for the Feast of Tabernacles. So it did begin to grow, and we are very, very grateful for that. Anyway, things began to happen and God was in charge, and Christ was in charge, and the work was revived. So it says here, He gave Him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church. Christ is alive. Christ is the living head of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. When He was here on the earth, He had two hands and two feet and a mouth. He preached the truth. He helped people in and out of the fishing boats and up and down as the disciples no doubt helped each other. He stretched out His hand and healed people, helped them, blessed them, served them with His physical body. He does not have a physical body anymore. We are His body. We are His church. And He uses us to do His work today. Christ is alive and He's in charge. And brethren, all of this revolves around that and you have to really prove that to yourself that Christ is alive He has a church somewhere on earth that's preaching the same truth and doing the same work that he himself and the apostles did do. And that's a very, very important concept. Turn back to Revelation now at this point, if you would. The book of Revelation, chapter 1. I'm going to begin here and then come back a few verses, but let's begin in verse 12. In Revelation, chapter 1, and verse 12, is describing Jesus Christ today, the way he looks And it says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And this is uh, verse 12. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. 
His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, coming right out from Christ's face like flames of fire, tremendous power emanating from him. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, apparently gleaming as though they were hot, quite hot. And his voice is the sound of many waters. When I think of the sound of many waters, I think of being up in northern California, you know, up in the Big Sur district. And the big waves come crashing over the rocks up there, and then that echoes along the Beku, whoosh, and it echoes up and down. Mighty waters. And, of course, many of you have been in storms, and you have perhaps heard mighty waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, what a short, like a short, short sword, two-edged sword, and his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, that is tremendously bright. As you know, you can't look on the sun directly very long without going blind. Here is tremendous power and glory coming right out from Christ's face. And when I saw him and fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell, or the grave, and of death. We only get out of death. We only have our sins forgiven through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. This is the glory of the one who is our leader, the one who is our real boss. Back in verse 4, John writes, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. We will later be born from the dead in the resurrection, but he's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. God never forgets that. We must never forget that we're only here and in God's church, if we're really converted, because we've had our sins forgiven because of the blood. The life is in the blood, Leviticus 17, 11. And Christ gave his life by pouring out his blood on our behalf to pay for our sins and has made us, you see, in his plan, he's done it. Nothing can change it. All the powers in heaven and hell will not change it. He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In his purpose, God has made us that. If we're faithful, we stay in God's church, we honor him, we do what we ought to, the die is cast. He has already put that in his plan and program for those who are faithful. So we have to really understand that and do our part to make our calling and election sure, as God tells us elsewhere in his word. Turn over to chapter 2 now. Again, a very familiar scripture, Revelation 2, 26. It's Christ speaking in the first person. He who overcomes and keeps my works, his whole way of life, to the end, not starting out and then quitting, not turning aside and causing division or upset in God's church, not showing disloyalty, but loyalty to him who overcomes, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also received from my Father. 
Christ also will have that opportunity, of course. He's king of kings. But we will be those lesser kings under Jesus Christ, who is king of kings. And then you turn over to Revelation chapter 5, another page forward in my Bible at least, Revelation 5, and here in verse 8 you hear to read about the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, verse 9 saying, the saints of God are pictured singing this song, obviously inspired, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to, to God by your blood, as we say the precious blood of Jesus Christ, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we, all of us, we shall reign on the earth. We're going to reign on this earth, not up in heaven. That's the place that Christ is preparing for us, to be a king or a priest in the kingdom of God, the ruling family of God, here on this earth, because he's preparing a kingdom. He is preparing a team of faithful, dedicated, loyal, loyal, human beings, fully surrendered to God and to Him whom He can count on to be faithful and loyal members of that team forever. He created three great super archangels called Caribbean, perhaps billions of years ago, called Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And one of them, Lucifer, as you know, Isaiah 14, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 tell the story, he turned aside. He thought, I'm going to be as great as God. I'm just going to be like the Most High. I'll fight. I'll do my own thing. And God cast him down, and he was kicked out of the kingdom of God. And, of course, he's going to be cut off from God and be in a place of torment forever. God thought, I can't have that kind of uh, personality or personalities in my coming kingdom. So he instituted at that time, or even before, we don't know, the plan of salvation where we have to totally repent of our sins, we have to surrender our lives to God, we have to show God and show Christ by a whole lifetime of surrender, of humility, of overcoming, of growing in grace and in knowledge that we really want the kingdom, we want eternal life on God's terms. We're not going to force our way in. We're going to really surrender to do it God's way. And that's the whole thing. Then over that trial period, and working with us in that way and watching us, he can be sure that we will never turn aside, that we will never rebel, that we will never become another Lucifer. And that's exactly what Christ has in mind and why he has, as he, as he has, the plan of salvation as we know it and is working with us. Turn to the book of Titus, brethren, if you would. In Titus chapter 1, the apostle Paul is inspired to describe something about the government of God, which is, of course, the beginnings of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> he says to Titus, My true Son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete. He left Titus on this big Mediterranean island that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now we see right here a picture of the government of God in operation under Christ's leadership in the New Testament. He told him to set in order the things that are lacking. Paul gave the instructions. He was the leading minister under Jesus Christ over the Gentile work. 
And he told Titus, the evangelist, to appoint elders, not to call an election and have the people vote. They never did that. But to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. You see, commanded is the word used. It's in a government situation. You say, about face. And the men in your platoon, about face. They don't usually stand there and oh, well, I think this and well, I think that. Well, now if Nancy Pelosi and some of these others were in charge of the military, maybe they would have a discussion while the Iraqis were butchering them to death. But that's not God's way. That is not God's way at all. So God has government from the top down. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, you see, he's not have more than one wife. And here is a transition period when some of the Jews before the New Testament were allowed to have more than one wife. But to be an elder, you can only have one wife and children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Children setting overall a good example. For a bishop or an elder must be not perfect. The word blameless means above reproach. In other words, you, you, your children are not perfect, but they're not drunkards and they're not uh, thieves and murderers and so on. As a steward of God, not self-willed, an elder must not be self-willed. Whereas this is the way I'm going to do and argue with you, argue with Paul or argue with uh, Titus or the evangelist who's in charge or whatever. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, or nor given to wine, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for money, always wanting more money, but hospitable, trying to be good to people, have them over, take people out, a lover of what is good. Mr. Armstrong taught us to have quality. He tried to teach us to recapture the true values. That was the motto of Ambassador College, recapture the true values. And that involved most of all, of course, the whole way of God, you know, the Ten Commandments and the way of life and Christ living within us, but also involved having the best type of music, the best type of art, art, the best type of literature and all that kind of thing, the right kind of entertainment and not cheap things, vulgar things, stupid things, childish things. He himself used to bring over to the college his old uh, stereo, and uh, we didn't have all the modern uh, uh, stuff that we have today, but he brought over some very fine recordings of the Russian Cossack choirs, these deep male singers. And then he would bring over some light opera and some heavy opera with, uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, some of the top singers of the day and some symphony pieces and others, a variety, but quality and tried to teach the students, even himself, apart from music appreciation, what was quality, and had us go to some good museums where they had quality paintings, not this insane stuff where it looks like they've thrown a bunch of crayons at the wall and see how it turns out. And that's not art. That's uh, that's really awful. I remember that uh, my mother, I guess it was my wife, took her to the uh, Pasadena Art Museum before it became the Norton Simon and uh, they had a bunch of, they, they had this, uh, in Pasadena, they had this uh, crazy art, modern art in there. And my mother, of course, had been around somewhat. She wasn't some great critic, but she traveled and been in various women's clubs. And she said, don't they have any real paintings in here? And, and the the, the, uh, the docent, I guess, looked kind of funny and all I had was this, this crazy stuff. Well, that's true. That's what Mr. Armstrong would say about most of the so-called music today. Don't they have any music here? 
Is it all screaming and yelling and so on? Or is there something that has melody and harmony and beauty and so on? So we try to recapture true values because if you hear the right kind of music, it's uplifting. It makes you think of the beautiful soaring mountains or the vast plains or things of beauty and culture, uplifting. Whereas in the modern music, goes like that, as you know. And it kind of jangles your nerves and you think, what is this? It's the product of a confused mind. Perhaps some young uh, guy in his 20s in New York or somewhere uh, smoking marijuana, maybe on drugs, writing this stuff. And then these kids just eat it up. They love it. And yet a lot of it's not music at all. It's just hysteria. So a lot of you are used to it. Some of you young people may even be used to that and you think it's music. In a few years, you'll find that won't even be around and you'll have to get used to what music really is. A complete re-education to recapture the true values and to learn to, you know, do that in every area of life, of course. But God wants us to do that and uh, to set that kind of example the best we can. That doesn't mean we all have to have tailor-made suits and drive... uh, uh, you know, uh, Rolls Royces and all that kind of thing, but to have good quality within our budget and good uh, culture within our means and the way we conduct ourselves, the things we see and the things we do and the things we enjoy. And that's what God wants, to be like God. And when you think of the beauty described in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the city gleaming with gold, and it describes that beauty and that awesome character of that city, you begin to realize this is what God is like. This is what God wants us to be like to the degree we can be in our human body, our human society, and especially, of course, in God's church to those who understand. So you're you're to learn what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Now, the reason I'm reading this to you is, frankly, these qualities apply to every future king. This doesn't apply just to elders because you're going to be more than an elder in a few years. And you ladies the same way. You're going to be kings. And we men won't be men and you won't be women. That's kind of hard to think, you know, we're not going to be old men and so on. But we will not have sex in the way we do today. We will be spirit beings and we will have the same personality and perhaps our face, the same general appearance. The Bible indicates that, but we won't look exactly the same, but we'll recognize each other as they recognize Jesus when he really appeared after his resurrection. And other things indicate that. But spirit beings, the character is what counts. The spirit in man, that thing that God is working with to make us willing to obey our maker, to live up to his standards in every phase of our lives. God is looking for that, a lover of what is good. All of us ought to want to be that way. We all want to be sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, not just losing our temper, not just going way beyond and all this way and that way, but self-controlled. That's what God wants a leader to be like. Holding fast the faithful word. We've got to hold fast God's word as he has been taught. That's a very important thing for a local elder. It doesn't mean that the church can never grow and add certain things as long as it's based on God's Word. But particularly, the new elders have got to learn to explain the Word as they have been taught. And through the years, as the Bible teacher, the one who taught more Bible classes than any other 
human being in Ambassador College over a longer period of time. And as the director of the ministry, I noticed that some of the elders would try to experiment with things. And whenever we had a local elder out here who hadn't had very much training, he didn't realize it. Maybe he was not going way off, but he's going just a little bit off. And as Mr. Armstrong said, if the scientists at JPL, the Pasadena Jet Propulsion Laboratory, don't set the, the rocket and, and the, the projectile just exactly right, if you're just one degree off, or if you're even just one half of one degree off, and you go out several thousand or several hundred thousand miles, you'll miss the moon or you'll miss the Mars, Mars by way off. You see, just a little bit off. God does not want us to be just a little bit off. God wants us to do it exactly right. And so that's very, very important. And so an elder should try, and all of you who are just members in the church, you have to trust Christ to guide the members, to guide the leaders, I mean, and any new elder is to teach the Word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict those who would argue and try to go against the truth. So we're all trying to build that kind of character. We all should try to develop those qualities through God's Holy Spirit within us. If we are going to be the kings and the priests on this earth, the leaders under Jesus Christ in a few years. Now, brethren, turn over to chapter 3 here of Titus at this point. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Uh, God says here, or Paul writes, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to, you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. We're supposed to have good works to do good to others and help people and do the work of God, of course. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Just arguing over points like that. Reject a divisive man. Some people in the church try to be more righteous than God. But brethren, we're training to be part of a government. And God is not going to have Lucifers just stay on in church and stay on in church if they start dividing people and subtly going a whispering campaign going around and talking against the leader, or talking against the, the government of God, or talking against perhaps God's way itself. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Admonish him once or twice, talk to him, but if he won't change, you've got to put him out. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned by his own actions, you see, or arguments. When I send, little another thought now, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. What does this tell us? Again, it tells you about God's government. He says, I want you, I'm going to send this other evangelist, Tychicus, and I want you to come here, he tells the evangelist Titus. There was government, and, Paul, and Titus, acting under, Jesus, under Paul and under Jesus Christ, was giving this instruction, or Paul was giving it here, I'm sorry. Send Zemus. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus, send Zemus and the lawyer and Apollos on their journey. So again, instruction from the top down. With haste that they may lack nothing and uh, let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. 
So you see the government of God being practiced. I'm sending so-and-so, you do this, you do that, you appoint elders in every city. And you see this all the way through the writings of Timothy and Titus, or the letters to Timothy and Titus, and to a certain degree through the whole book of Acts. There was government, there was organization, there was not voting, there was not politicking, but those whom Christ set by the fruits and by guiding the situation where they they were the ones doing the work, then they, of course, were supposed to be the leaders. And Paul sent Titus and Tychicus and others to many different places. Were all those places nice, wonderful places? Not necessarily, but you never find those righteous men rebelling or arguing or something like that. And brethren, I always remember the examples, and I will never forget the examples of many men, including Mr. Carl McNair and Mr. John O'Gwen. Never forget their examples. Mr. Carl McNair was willing to come out from Milwaukee and help us get the church administration organized when we were first starting the work of God and the global church of God. Sold his home in Milwaukee, came out to California, which he did not particularly like. I'd always known that because he'd been my brother-in-law. He liked it more back in the Midwest or out in the, out in the hills somewhere, but he came to Southern California. But he came out there, set it up, Then when he was having some really serious health problems and kept rubbing his eye and he was having some ulcers as as, uh, Mr. Davis and Mr. Ames and I'm sure others, Mr. Parting will remember, then I felt it was best at that point to have him go back to Helena. He was always wanting to go to Montana, so we had him go up to Helena, Montana. And uh, actually, I guess that's where he came from the first time. He'd already been from Milwaukee to Helena. Didn't mean to switch it around. But we went back up there so he could have a chance to recuperate and we had another man come in over church administration for a while. And I'd been warned against this other man somewhat by others, but I wanted to forgive this fellow. He and his wife said, we're, we're, we're uh, sorry about we've been politicking and we're not going to do this anymore. Well, I wanted to be the great forgiver, so I forgave him and he had a lot of ability, personality, so we put him over church administration. And right away, I began to notice a different attitude. And I heard about secret meetings at the other end of the hall. I was one end on this uh, this uh, second floor of the uh, uh, building there, and he was at the other end. And, and my secretary, he didn't know, was best friends with this fellow's secretary. And, and his secretary told my secretary, he said, they're having meetings, and when they're coming and going, sometimes I can hear some negative remarks. Something's going on. Finally, we had the big split, and this fellow left. Well, Mr. Carl Manair could have got his feelings hurt. He could say, well, you sent me home and, you know, and all, and I'm not coming back. But he did come back. He and Mrs. McNair came right back down from their wonderful outdoor area, their cabin, a house cabin, a very nice cabin like a house up in Montana, out in the hills, which he loved, and came right down and set up church administration after we were kicked out of our own offices had to start all over with no equipment, no salary, no nothing for several weeks. And he set up the church administration on my uh, uh, dining room or breakfast room table <laughs> in the breakfast nook. And that's where church administration was on the, on the uh, uh, big uh, heavy glass table in the breakfast nook. And he was calling and heading his computer and sending messages all over and was willing to do that again. And, of course, wherever he needed to go, he would go all over the world. Same thing with Mr. John O'Gwen. 
And I know I had to move John once or twice, and he always said, wherever you want. He told me that very heartfeltly, the reason I remembered. He says, just wherever you want me, you know, I'll go there. And uh, that was just his attitude from the beginning to the end. He didn't say, well, I'm important, and I'm doing all this and that, which he was. You don't need to send me somewhere. He just says, I want to serve wherever you want me to serve, and I know God will guide it. As long as you're in that responsibility, that's what I'll be glad to do. And he was glad to do it, not argue about it. But, you know, that's the attitude Christ wants in his kingdom, brethren. He wants people who have that attitude. You can see that. That's not difficult to explain. And yet when someone rebels right in front of your face, they don't grow horns. They don't come around or come around to people and say, I am Satan and I have horns and I'm going to destroy the church. They don't do that. But they start out by subtly attacking me or attacking Dr. Winnale or attacking Mr. Ames or attacking some of the other leaders of the church. Right now, I understand, they're attacking Dr. Winnale even more than me. I think it was Jerry told me, uh, Mr. Ruddleston out on the Internet, they're, they're, I guess he has a doctor's degree and he must have said something they regard as liberal. So they're trying to get him. Well, I've known Dr. Winnale for about 40 years. I performed his wedding and I've been with him over and over and over. He is not liberal. He believes the same thing I do and the same thing I'm sure the most of you do but they're trying to make remarks and put, well, they're trying to change things. They're trying to do away with things. And watch out, watch out. Why do they say this? Because they are trying to cause division and without realizing it, these men are yielding themselves to Satan the devil who is the one who is the accuser of the brethren. We're not spending our time accusing them. We hear them accusing us. They're making calls all over. And if we ever defend ourselves at all, and some of you think we're the bad guy. No, we're not the bad guy. They're making a hundred more times more calls than we are probably. But at any rate, we try to help the brethren to understand a little bit about what's happening. But you do need to understand the way God works. If God has guided my life and His church and His ministry for the last 54 years of faithful ministry and teaching the truth in Ambassador College, directing the ministry, writing articles, writing even the old Ten Commandment booklets way back in 1959 and 60, which we've revived and revised and using again, so on, all those things. And you see but the fruits of this church, that's the key thing, and all this is hinged on that, is Christ using us? Are we preaching the full truth of God more fully than anyone else? The truth of the Bible. The truth of the Bible. Are we doing the work of getting the message of the kingdom of God out, which we are over and over again? If I throw in the name of Jesus Christ, that apparently frightens people once in a while. Oh, you're mentioning Jesus Christ's name. How awful. Well, that's too bad for them because Christ will not let them even in his kingdom unless they get over that, brethren. I really mean that. We're going to have to have a profound love and adoration for Jesus Christ. We can't even get into the kingdom without Jesus Christ. I am the door, the way of the life, he said. He is the way in. If any man tries to come up another way, he is a thief and a robber, Jesus said. And Christ is the king of that coming kingdom. Of course we'd better honor him. Of course talking about him from time to time is part of the gospel. That's the main thing they did talk about. Read the book of Acts again. Just read it. Please read it carefully. The whole book of Acts. It won't take you forever. You can read it one or two nights. Over and over again it talks about that. And that was part of the gospel they preached. An important part. But we call it the gospel of the kingdom of God more often. And that's good. Mr. Armstrong did that. We follow him in that. 
and were near the kingdom. Back then they were near to what Christ did, so they emphasized that part more. There's a reason, and so on. But we've got to understand the basic attitude. Christ wants us to fully surrender to Him and to not be ready to just argue or rebel. I do remember these men. I remember even more recently Mr. Rod King and how I personally met him. It was five or six years ago. I'd known him over in Brickett Wood. He'd been there, and I was the director of his ambassador club and got to know him better. So he met my wife and I when we were there. It was five years ago right now, wasn't it? Five years ago in the hotel in Melbourne. And he had known me before somewhat and brought his wife. And they came and were checking us out. And now he's over thousands of miles away from his home, the other end of the earth. Because we had to have someone. I had to have Mr. Winnell come here. And then I had to have someone replace Dr. Winnell over in Britain to carry on the work there. And I've been watching Rod King. That's part of my job. I tend to watch things down the future to figure out who will fit where and why. And I did. And I called him. And then later I called Mr. Tyler. I went to Rod first. <laughs> and I went to Mr. Tyler to be sure he wouldn't have a heart attack. To swipe his best man down there. He's the leading minister in Australia. And he was willing to leave his home. They had four children down there. Leave every, his home, everything he had. His family's down there. His father's old and getting ready to die, I suppose. He's 80-something. All those things move all the way across the earth to Great Britain. Yes, sir, I'll be willing to do that. And then I called him just before the Feast of Tabernacle with the split in South Africa. And I thought he just had, had got there and I thought it was better that he stay there. But I knew we had to have someone in South Africa in the emergency to help carry on. And I was going to send someone else and uh, actually I had in mind Big Ben Whitfield, who's a clear dear friend and traveled a lot and knew Big Ben would be willing to go, or I thought he would. But Mr. Aparty had mentioned some things to me. And he'd been thinking about it too, and he explained how it would really be better as an, in an international area like that and the distance to travel that for Rod King, who was closer. And I'd forgotten something Mr. Aparty had mentioned that only about half of the British were going to be there in Britain anyway. Most of them were going to France where Mr. Parting was having the feast, you see. There wouldn't be that many there. So I called Rod, but the strange thing I didn't realize is that two of his children had come all the way around the world to visit him and his wife over the Feast of Tabernacles. His children he hadn't seen now for months, and he was willing to leave. He did get to see them a few days, but he knew the need. And so his wife stayed home, but he was willing to leave his children, leave his wife, and fly all the way down to South Africa in order to do the job and to help hold the church together down there. He said, yes, sir, I know that's important. That's what I'll do. Now, that's the attitude Jesus Christ is looking for, my brethren, in his kingdom. I've had to do that a number of times, and I won't dwell on what I've done. I don't need to do that. These men have done it. Other men have done it. And I appreciate that very, very much. And so does Jesus Christ. But some resist God's government. If I say, I'll transfer you, I'm quit, I'm out of here. I want to send you back to somewhere, even a place they've asked to go in the past. And so what do they do? They rebel and start another church. That's what they do for no reason. It's not to do the work of God. If they were trying to do the work of God, and if they were trying to be on Christ's team, recognizing Christ is the head of the church, they were, as they themselves proclaimed, maybe a few weeks or months before they left, 
in the work of God that was doing the work of God, preaching the truth of God, carrying out the government of God. But when it comes their time, their turn to submit to the government of God, what do they do? I'm out of here. So we have to realize that, brethren. Christ is testing each one of you. He's testing me, yes. If I misuse my office, He's not going to let me in His kingdom or I'll have a much lesser reward. I understand that. I have to govern under Christ in the fear of God. And I do. I do do it that way. And I try to get multitude of counsel as well. But Christ is testing us in that way. And we've had wonderful examples of ministers who are willing to be changed, to go somewhere else. Some of them way back from, from Montana back down to Southern California, which they didn't necessarily like. And Rod King's case all the way around the earth from Australia back to, to Britain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a scripture I use quite often, but yet we should use and become very familiar with. Again, we have the picture from the Apostle Paul of the government of God in operation within God's church. He says, verse 1, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? How dare you go out in the world to some worldly court? Well, if I put it like that to some of our own brethren, they'd get upset. Well, you don't have a right to tell me what to do. But Paul wrote that to the brethren in his time. Think about it. You see, we're in such a democratic society where everyone says, this is my opinion, my opinion, my opinion. People aren't used to being told what to do. and They don't want to be told what to do. Now, it's not the job of the ministers to get into your business, by the way, your personal business and tell you exactly how to spend your money or what kind of clothes you're going to wear or what kind of car you're going to drive or stuff like that. But in spiritual matters, yes, the ministry should take the lead. And if you have a, a lawsuit against someone else in the church, you're not to go to out some outside court unless the ministry tells you to if it's some kind of an unusual situation. But normally you let the minister decide it. it saves you lots of time and money. Can you trust Christ to guide his church? You see, it all comes down to that. Can you do that? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters, these arguments between brethren? You see, our whole purpose here in being taught and trained in government is to help us get ready to rule the whole world. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? The whole angelic host, we're going to help decide between various things in the future about them. How much more things that pertain to this life. That's what we're being trained to do. If then you have judgment concerning things pertaining to this life, if your neighbor, uh, you know, uh, and someone in the church, I should say, maybe some man tends to drink too much at church socials and starts dancing close with your wife or flirting with her or if he's really mean to your animal or he gets, uh, uh, he comes over or lets his children or his animals tear up your property, you should go to him about it. Go to your brother, follow Matthew 18, 15. And if he won't listen to them, then of course take one or two others. And if he won't listen to them, then tell the ministry, tell the church and the church can then help decide if you're right. Maybe you're too picky. See, maybe you're too picky. But if you're not too picky, and he's wrong, then we'll tell him he's wrong. He shouldn't be doing this. And hopefully he will submit to the uh, judgment of the church, of God's ministry in that way. 
So if you have judgments about those things, why do you appoint, as it should be, why do you appoint those who are least esteemed from the point of view of the church? I say to your shame, is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren or train for that very job? And all of you young people in the church, I hope as you hear this around the world in various places, you're being trained too. You're going to be leaders in a few years, hopefully in God's church and later in the human society under Jesus Christ. And all of us need to be learning wisdom and leadership and management, how to delegate, how to follow through and get people to do the right work in the right way, whatever it is. And to be fair, to be just, to be humble, to cry out to God for wisdom because we're training for that very purpose. Again, brethren, three things you check out. You say, well, I couldn't just follow through on that. Yes, you could, if you're sure. And you, you, you better not wait till Mr. Perfect comes along, as I tell all the young men, if they wait till Miss Perfect comes along, till they find the right wife, they'll never get married, because she will never come along. There's never been a perfect woman. And you women, if you wait till Mr. Perfect comes along, you're never going to get married because there'll never be a Mr. Perfect. Only Jesus Christ was perfect. And he's not here in person in the flesh. <laughs> and when he was here, he didn't get married. He'd already been married spiritually to the church. So you don't, don't, none of us are perfect, but look at the big picture. Where on this earth do you find older ministers who work with God's servant, Mr. Armstrong, like Mr. Apartian did? like Mr. Dick Ames did, like I did, for decades and decades and are able to carry on the work of God to preach the full truth of God in a balanced way, not getting all picky about certain things when they try to resurrect certain things that Mr. Armstrong may have changed back and forth on three or four times or stuff like that. I'm talking about the basic things of God, all of them. Is there some new doctrine coming along? No, there's no new doctrine coming along. Let me say that to you doubters out there who may hear this later. No new doctrine is coming along that I have any thought or hint or even the wildest intimation of. All we're doing is emphasizing Jesus Christ a little bit more to honor Him and to honor God as God would want us to do it as they did do. Are we able to do that? Are we able to grow in grace and knowledge and add a few technical points or a little deeper understanding of prophecy once in a while, some technical points or something, some other spiritual technical points, not changing any doctrine? Of course we should. Mr. Armstrong would want us to. If Mr. Armstrong were to come back from the dead and I would say, well, Mr. Armstrong, and I was a, his student, taught all my Bible classes by him, and work under him and with him so closely for decades. I know him and know that I know him. I'd say, Mr. Armstrong, if we've grown in this point a little bit here and there, is that okay? Of course, Rod. He said, that's what I told you to do. That's what I would do if I'd lived on another 21 years. Because he died over 21 years ago. Of course he would have made little modifications. But not in the Ten Commandments. Not in the Holy Days. No. No new doctrine. Period but we will grow in grace and our love and our worship of God and for certain technical points and refinements, yes, but not talking about a new doctrine, not talking about what the Tkachas did. Some of them say, well, they talked about a little, little twist here, a little new idea here, a little clarification here. Well, they did that because the men that took over, as you know, had never been trained directly under Mr. Armstrong, did not know Mr. Armstrong that well, 
were not one who'd been taught the doctrines of the world, had been teaching, as I had, the doctrines of the Worldwide Church of God class and been the main one teaching the truth all the way through in Ambassador College. They didn't have that kind of background. None of them did. Period. So after 54 years of doing that, do you think I'm suddenly going to turn aside at nearly 77 years of age? No way. No way. I'm not going to do that. Please understand that. I hope you'll understand. And I hope you local people will forgive me for hollering a little. I'm not mad at you. (laughs) But I want everyone around the world to get the picture. They do need to understand that. And we need to stay together and learn the lessons that God wants us to learn and do the work of Christ. We're near the end of an age. We need to hang together. We need to be unified. We need to move forward and get this message around the world. And we can't do that. If every Tom, Dick, and Harry says, well, I want to be important, so I'll go over here and start something else. Well, I want to be important, so I'll go over here. Well, my feelings are hurt about this little point, so I'm going to rush off here. That's not God's way. That's the way of disloyal men, confused men, men that God cannot trust, Christ cannot trust forever, because if they do that now, how can Christ have any confidence whatsoever that they won't do that again? just like Lucifer did when he turned away from Christ and took one-third of the angels with him. That is not God's way. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. Again, you older brethren, remember this. But it's a very important thing, and we should review it once in a while. God spends quite a bit of time on this because it was a very basic lesson that God wants us to learn. Remember how when Samuel came to... uh, King Saul, and he said, God says, I'm going to punish Amalek, and so you go and utterly destroy Amalek. It says in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3, and kill all of the people and the animals and so on, don't leave anything. So later, they found that Saul had indeed spared some of the best of the animals and the king and so on, had not done what God said. And so then, Samuel was sent by God to talk to him, God's prophet, Samuel, Verse 17, Samuel came and told this great big giant of a man, Saul, King Saul, who was head and shoulders taller than all the other men in Israel, apparently very, very big and very impressive looking. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the eternal anoint you to be king over Israel? Now look, why did you not do what you were told to do? And then Saul tried to make some excuse and said, well, I did. Well, no, you didn't. Well, the people... The people, he said, wanted to sacrifice to the eternal, and he made various excuses. So then Samuel said, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Think about it. God wants us to do what He says. If we make excuses, we water it down, He gives a direct command, destroy Amalek, and we won't do that. Something's wrong. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So a few years later, as you know, or maybe it was a few months, Saul was slain in battle with his two sons, and David was made the king. And actually, this was a few years later, the way it turned out. David still had to go through a lot of trials and tests and plead for his life. 
and cry out to God from the hills and caves of Judea for years and wait on God before he finally was put in that office. But nevertheless, God was going to remove Saul and he finally did do that and put David in there. So God wants us to learn that lesson. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness where man says, I won't do, you know, and here's the church of God. We're doing the work of God. We give people honorable jobs and they say, no, I'm not going to follow Mr. Carl Manair's example and be willing to come down. I'm not going to follow Rod King's example and be willing to move somewhere else. You send me somewhere else, I'm going to get my feelings hurt. Nope. God may send us any place He wants to. And I've done that. I've gone to England when my wife was big pregnant with Elizabeth. It was awkward for us to go over there. She was born over in Britain. He sent me back a few years later when my son Jim was, my wife was pregnant with my son Jim, who's now 46 years old. And we had to go back again in 1960. And, and, uh, and then Jim was born over there in 60. And we were there until early 1961. And my wife was going to give birth and it was awkward, but we went back anyway. I never argued one on one sentence. It never occurred to me to argue with Mr. Armstrong. He was trying to send me off to do a job and it needed to be done. And there wasn't much of a church over there, but I knew that he wanted us to get things started, so we did. And these other men have done the same thing. And God's faithful servants down through the ages have done the same thing. Turn to John chapter 15, if you would now, brethren. John, the Gospel of John chapter 15. And uh, let's begin here in verse 14. John 15, verse 14. And... Uh, he says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. See, it's a matter of government. I chose you and anointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So we're Christ's friends. We can be on, on Christ's inner team if we will learn to really do what he said, if you will do what I command you. And Christ wants us to respond and to learn to respond positively. That's so important, brethren. Turn back to Matthew 20, and I will go over this here Briefly, because you're familiar with it, Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called uh, the disciples to himself. He heard they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life uh, as a ransom for many. That's the example that a minister should try to set. I've got to try to set that even at age 76 to keep working, to keep teaching, to keep preaching, to keep writing, to do my best to guide the church the right way. But the attitude has got to be there of servant, not just trying to see how important I can be or how big a car I can drive or things like that. That's not the attitude God wants. But then you turn back to chapter, uh, but see, some of these men want to be important. They just want to be important. If they had the attitude of service, they would say, well, sure, I'll take a lesser job for a while. I'll do whatever Christ wants me to do, as many of us have had to do. Turn back to Matthew chapter 16, 
And verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come to me, let him deny himself and, uh, and uh, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, are you willing to move somewhere else? Rod King was, Carl Air was, many others have done in this work of God. Are you willing to do that? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what man is profited if he gains the whole world? Some people are trying to see how much money they can get or how much this or how much that. And loses his own soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then he will reward each according to his works. How much do you accomplish? How humble have you been? How zealous have you been to give your life to God, to build the work of God, to build the kingdom of God, to get the message of God around the world with all your heart and all your mind? That's what Christ is looking at, not how much you can exalt yourself and ask important. So always try to think, brethren, all of you, how can I best give and serve where I am in God's church? And if God gives me a bigger job, I'll use that the best I can. I'll serve the best I can. If God gives me a lesser job, maybe he's teaching me a lesson. I'll humble myself and do that job the best I can. Turn to Ephesians 4 now. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice, as we've gone over this, but notice in verse 1, I therefore the prisoner. Paul was in a Roman prison. He had a ball and chain around his ankles, as you know. And he was no doubt very humbled by that. I beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you're called, with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity, not endeavoring to have some excuse to break up God's church, to divide God's church, which Satan tried to do. Satan is the great divider. Satan is the one who started accusing those over him. That's not God's way. You know, he must have accused and accused God himself. Why else would these angels have left? One third of them. You better believe he was busy whispering, whispering. Well, they're changing this. Well, God's not fair. Well, God is this and God is that. But God was God and he's the one who created. And Christ is our Savior. And he's the one who's guided his church down to this time. And is using us and been using us to carry on the work. And we're doing the work. It's being done. Increasing millions are being reached. Let's not throw that away. Or to be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, not all kinds of bodies here and there, one Spirit, one attitude, one basic approach of total surrender to God, total surrender to Christ, total surrender to Christ's leadership in the church, the government of God and learning every lesson doing the work of God with all our hearts, going all out to prepare for God's kingdom, serving sacrificially, giving in tithes and offerings, sacrificially too to get the work done. As we get closer to the end, I'm going to try to give more of my savings. I told my wife that the other day. Maybe there's, you know, maybe we'll have another eight or 12 years. I don't know that, but we ought to try to give as best we can. God's looking at all of us, the leaders and every one of us. I don't have near as much savings as some of you do. Probably been saving some of our businessmen in the church here and there. 
But each of us should try to do that, to lay down our lives for our brethren. That's what Christ wants us to do. And God will bless us forever and ever if we do that. You know that. You're not doing that to please me, but to please Christ. So there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through us, through all, and in you all, living His life in us through the Holy Spirit. And verse 11, And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Christ did that. He's in charge for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to get this message out all over the world for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Because we're trying to help all of you to understand and to help you to grow out of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to have good character, to emphasize good quality, to learn to use wisdom and to learn loyalty to God, to Christ, to God's church, so you can have a good position, so you can be in God's kingdom, God's family forever and bear the name of God as full sons of God because you've fulfilled the purpose for which you've been created and the purpose for which you've been called. Till we all come in the unity. God emphasizes that word unity. We're to be together. We're not to try to split. Unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We ought to try to reflect Christ more as a church to reflect Christ more individually in loving and helping and serving and giving to and forgiving, forgiving one another and walking with God, that we all should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Well, I think this and I think that, trying to water down the truth or change God's people, get them upset about whatever, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they will lay in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. We're to grow up to the head, Christ. To be like Christ. To love Christ. Worship Christ. Obey Christ. And have Christ live his life within us through the Holy Spirit. That's why we're here. So certainly we're to have that unity and we need that unity to build the work. You know that. If we split up, we can't do a powerful work. God wants us to learn that and He wants us to be together and to stay together and to learn loyalty and unity so we can be together loyally and unified in His kingdom and His family forever. Not following the example of Lucifer and the rebellious angels, but doing God's work humbly and learning every lesson that God wants us to learn. Then we will learn to truly overcome the self and we can be sure as loyal members of Christ's family to be in His kingdom and to be in the team, the team that Christ is preparing, the kingdom of God, the family of God. And that's so important that we can learn that. And then God and Christ can learn to trust you and trust me in their own team, to be part of their team, to be part of their family, to be part of their kingdom, loyal members of the kingdom of God forever.